I'm Locke Mackay, and you're listening to Gospel Tangents. The best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. We're going to delve into current events. You've probably seen the latest image of Joseph Smith. I'm excited to have Apostle Locke Mackay from the Community of Christ. He's one of the historians who helped authenticate this image. Is it really him? Is it Hiram? Could it have been forged? How did they go through the authentication process? We're going to ask a lot of good questions, and uh, Locke will answer. And so you won't want to miss this episode. Of course, you probably also remember Under the Banner of Heaven. We're not going to talk about that, but we're going to talk about the RLDS version of the Lafferty Brothers. Yes, they had a a series of grisly murders also in the 1987s. And so uh, we're going to talk about that uh, with Apostle Locke Mackay from the Community of Christ. You won't want to miss this episode. Check it out. Welcome to Gospel Tangents, everyone. I am really excited that I've got a a Community of Christ Apostle back on the show. Could you go ahead and tell us who you are? Yeah. My name is Lachlan Mackay, and I oversee the USA Northeast field for Community of Christ, which is Michigan to Maine to Virginia, and also have functional assignments, which include Community of Christ Historic Sites and our church history team. Well, that's awesome. And so where are you currently? I am at home in Nauvoo, Illinois. And you've been there for a while. Yeah, I moved here in 2007, so I've been here for 15 years, and that followed 15 years in Kirtland, Ohio, and I was born and raised in eastern Jackson County, Missouri. Oh, wow, you hit all the three main history sites, right? Yep, yep. (laughs) Well, that's exciting. I know me and Steve Pineacre, we came out there this summer uh, with Paul DeBarth and his archaeological dig on the Times and Seasons, and we got a personalized tour of the Joseph Smith house, which was just fantastic. (laughs) A lot of fun, a lot of fun. So I, I really appreciate that. So uh, for those of you who are LDS and you didn't you didn't see my first interview with Locke and uh, John Hamer, go back and watch that. It's it's one of my top, I think, top five interviews still. So we, we talked about the uh, different. In fact, it was the difference between RLDS and LDS temple worship. And so uh, so you're you're kind of a celebrity here. <laughs> Scary. <laughs> but I, I know I've got a lot of, of new users or new subscribers here. So so we're here to talk about this cool issue here with the um, John Whitmer Historical Journal. You were one of the people who helped identify that this really is Joseph Smith, or, or at least I guess we can't be 100% sure, but... but I, I heard an interview where you said you weren't so sure when you first saw this. You know, tell us about the discovery of this and, and why you weren't quite so sure if that was Joseph Smith. My uncle, Dan Larson, found this object among items given to him by his grandfather in 92. He, um, he was also given a watch at the time, Joseph III's pocket watch, the third with his monogram on He thought this... Uh, object was also a watch that he couldn't so he put these items away found them 28 years later this time was to get the watch locket open and it wasn't a turn watch but uh, a locket so there was a daguerreotype inside he gave me a photograph of the daguerreotype i looked and i said to myself i don't think that's just but with dan's permission i reached out to robic who i've for decades on Smith family visual materials and daguerreotypes. Ron looked at 
that that's Joseph, and that that kind of launched us into the two years of process. Oh wow! Well, very cool. So you said Ron was was pretty sure right off the bat. Is that right? Ron is much more visually oriented than I am, <laughs> so he was. Um, it, it's set in the locket slightly off center, so not quite straight up and down, and that threw me a little bit on some of the things I would typically look for trying to identify. I think is Joseph. Huh, well, very cool. So, um, you know, I know a lot, there's been a lot of people on the internet, especially when this first came out, people were like, that's not Joseph, that's Hiram, or that's Sam. I, I, Hiram was the most common, but could it have been a different Smith brother or even just a complete stranger? Well, I, I, sure, it could be. I, I don't think it is. Uh, in, in both images of Hiram done during that I know of, Lovely, a few more. He has major sideburns. All ninety images of Hiram show those sideburns. People, I think, were cut up in them, which in the death mask of Hiram was broken off and replaced. So, I wonder if we're actually seeing Hiram's chin. They're already doing kind of facial recognition with Hiram's death mask and the Smith Larson daguerreotype, and it's not a mask. It's it's not Hiram. Uh, it's I'm sure. It, be somebody else, but it matches really well with the death mask and with the oil portrait. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that people like Emma J. Joseph and his oldest grandchild, Joseph III's oldest child, would be wearing a photograph on her breast for 35 years of somebody she never met and never knew was not related to. You know, people have said it must be Mads Madison, her aunt's the stepmother's. Answer. People have said it must be Hiram. Again, Hungle, she never, of course, she never met Joseph Smith Jr., but felt some significant connection to him, carrying his name as well as um, Emma. So I think, you know, history is about probabilities, and it really, for me, is pretty convincing that this is Joseph. Well, very good. Can you talk about, tell us how you how you would go about even trying to identify is this Joseph Smith or is it someone else? What, what were the procedures you went through? So we were hoping for a, a, an easy solution, which was to take the, the watch apart and discover Joseph Smith inside or, or even a maker's mark on the, the uh, that was difficult to do though, because it was in the, the height of the pandemic shutdown and, Nobody wanted to meet with us. Um, nobody was in their office to answer their phone. But finally, um, we were able to connect with somebody with the experts um, uh, who also had to somebody with the ability to, to, to take apart a miniaturist who could take apart the object without damage. Um, and under Dan's watchful care, they got it apart. No names, no dates, no maker's marks. That was our, our first strategy. Uh, we also then started thinking about facial recognition software. Of course, that best, there are photographs of a person and you're comparing a potential image to them. That's the case here. So we have to use two pieces of art, a death man and an 1840 royal portrait. Uh, so that's a, an objective approach. So did some subjective things like uh, a really good forensics artist who did overlays and and feature tracing and etc. 
Netherlands than not. So um, could we find written references to it? Um, Joseph III says on a number of occasions that his father had a type by, he thinks, Lucian Foster. Um, he gets used with oil portrait, a daguerreotype of the oil portrait at times. So that was critical to untie. Um, and then we started finding photographs of women wearing what certainly looked the locket. So provenance, uh, objective approach, subjective analysis, documentary sources. Very good. So you you did say that there were two daguerreotypes. One was of the painting and one was of Joseph, and those were kind of hard to disentangle what the written records, which was which? Yeah, so it's not when Joseph is referencing a daguerreotype of his father. Uh, it, it is clear that he at times is talking about a daguerreotype of the oil culprit, but he doesn't know that. It's hard to believe, but even today, people are finding photographs of the oil portrait in several forms, an 1879 Carson image and an 1885 Carter image. They believe that they're photographs from life. They're not. Joseph III had the same difficulty, and, and we talk about it in the paper why that might be. Daguerreotypes are surprisingly lifelike because of the way they appear and disappear in the image. They're also reversed, so that it, it, just like the painting, which is, is reversed. Um, Joseph III is, has vision issues. He eventually is completely blind. I don't think that's the case. He is initially talking about it, but, but four years of his life, definitely completely. Okay. Well, very good. So, um, I know another another piece of the puzzle was because you, I guess you basically had three evidences. You had the, this locket, you had the um, the painting, the Maudsley painting that everybody's familiar with, and you had the death mask. Um, talk about what are the differences between the death mask and the Maudsley painting first. Yeah, so it's not a Maudsley painting. There are Maudsley paintings, but the one, one focusing on, on David Rogers' painting, Maudsley oh, okay. and Rogers from New York City, the front views. Now, people get really confused that there's David Rogers, a portrait painter, church member from New York City, who comes to Nob in September of 42. Joseph records sitting for him for five days. Rogers goes home, eventually becomes a strangite, and lives out in the state. He gets confused with Dwight Rogers, who's a member. Um, he writes, he mares, he, he, he put together a hymnal, he goes west. So people confuse those two. We're talking about is David Rogers, New York City. You compare it to the death mask, there are many similarities, but some difference. The portrait, the nose is longer, and we knew that that end, that, that's going to be the case because other people had already compared the portrait to the mask. Um, so we knew that if, if the daguerreotype was Joseph, then would match with the portrait, and sure enough, it, it didn't move off. So the, the portrait painting. Noses longer, mouths a little smaller, uh, made hair straighter, made skin whiter and smoother, so you look younger. It was an attempt, apparently, to make like you had never a day in your life. And and when you look at Emma's portrait compared to 1845 daguerreotype, you see the same same change. 
And one of the next steps is to track down other David Rogers portraits and then other photographs of those people uh, and see if the same are being made, and I'm pretty confident they are. Yeah, so it's interesting that you, you brought up the Emma because when you compare the Emma painting versus the real Emma, you're like, these would look really, really different. And so, um, so I it, it sh- I guess it shouldn't surprise us that the the paint the Rogers painting and the daguerreotype look very different as well. I had to throw a word of caution out at this point as well because online I'm seeing people talking about the Emma painting. The image they're using is not the Emma painting. It's it's a later Utah copy Emma oh. painting. Um, so be, be oh, sure you're going to look look at the real thing, not a later copy. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't known that. Let's talk a little bit about provenance. I think that's probably the hardest thing to do. The the, the first thought that came into my mind. Um, because this was first discovered in 1992, right? We don't have anything really further back than 1992, and that's kind of the Mark Hoffman era, and there's still Hoffman forgeries are still coming up. There's a, a Emily Dickinson poem that was sold in the 1990s that was a Hoffman forgery. Um, Brent Ashworth mentioned that on, on, my, on my previous interview. Is there any way that we can know the Providence before 1992, or, or is that just where we where we are and where it's going to have to be? So, even though the op was first uh, in 1992, he didn't open it then. I don't know if we knew that it was 1992 or not. Right. The watch locket, yes. The daguerreotype, um, he, he didn't realize what it was until 2020. Uh, so, so, there might be references to it. I, I think there probably are. Joseph the Third. Um, he talks about Joseph, his dad, Edgar, to Julia, Joseph the Third's portrait. But I, I think he's likely confusing the two because it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me that Joseph would give his daughter a daguerreotype of the portrait when he could give her instead a daguerreotype of himself. And a daguerreotype in a locket is exactly the kind of thing that you would give to your wife or your daughter that they were wildly popular they were viral at the time and you would give them to loved ones to remember you by so uh, i think that some of joseph the third statements are likely to this this object but again it's pretty hard to untangle and in the photographs of the women or in one case a painting of emma um, i'm pretty confident that's what they're seeing uh, but we can't pull out. We, we can pull out not quite enough detail to know with certainty. So I'm convinced that the walk locket that Bertha Madison Smith and Emma J is wearing is this watch locket. I think I can see scrolling that matches along the edge of the locket. I think I can see the shoreline and some of the buildings that match. But I recognize that some people are are not going to agree with that. It's it's harder to see in the journal than it is to see on a computer screen. That the print process lost some of that detail, but but I believe that that there are similar details. Uh, there is an 18 circa 44 Emma Sutcliffe Maudsley profile Emma with Alexander. It's plate 18 in Stephen Buell's book on Sutcliffe Maudsley, 
and she is wearing what is either a watch or a watch locket uh, in the pocket of her dress on a ribbon around her neck. Um, and it, um, it's interesting to me that she would pick that object to feature in a, in a painting. Um, so I, I think it shows up, but I, I wish we had better sources, and we're still working on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely. Because I know, I think Artist Partial, do you know Artis? I do, yeah. Yeah, she's a, she's a wonderful historian and genealogist in her own right, kind of a very talented amateur. But that's that's been her biggest thing is provenance. And there are, there are pictures of lockets, and you mentioned that several times in the... Um, in the journal article, um, but the idea she's like, well, it could be any round object, um, sure. and, and so that's her biggest thing. Not that it is or isn't Joseph. It's just we can't we can't be sure. And I know maybe you could talk about this with with the whole Hoffman saga. The LDS yeah. Church got burned pretty hard on that, and so it's they're a little bit more uh cautious on on saying that yeah. this absolutely is joseph i mean is it the same way because you guys got burned too by mark hoffman just as bad as the lds church yeah let me start by think? saying i'm a big fan of artists i love her work um and i appreciate the questions she's asked i think they're helpful in moving the process forward uh the church of jesus christ had an opportunity to examine the object for several months relatively early in the process and they also concluded it's a mid it's consistent with the mid 1840s so it's tempting to talk about hoffman but but i don't don't think there's any evidence that this is any kind of forgery i mean what it could be is not joseph <laughs> but I, I don't think there's any I, i've not seen any suggestion from somebody who's examined it that it is not an 1840s object having said that i appreciate that the church of jesus christ is very careful because of their experience with Hoffman. My sense is that, that because church leaders came out so strongly in support of some of those documents that turned out to be forgeries, that that was pretty difficult for some members and caused, caused consternation among some. So I understand the very cautious approach. Um, Community Price, for other reasons, doesn't take positions on historical matters. Um, we, we leave that to the historians. Uh, not because of Hoffman, but because we think that's that's the way you do good history, um, and that, <laughs> that historical positions, you know, our, our interpretations change with new information. So, the church will not take a position on is it or is it not, but but members of our historical community, including our church historians, are welcome to take positions, and and I believe that all are, uh, all believe it is, uh, but again. We're open to where the sources and the lead us. That's that's the way the process works. Well, and to go in the Hoffman direction a little bit, is is this something that could be replicated in the current day? Could you could a could a person such as Mark Hoffman uh, create a daguerreotype? You know, Mark Mark was notorious for tearing out pages out of old Bibles at the BYU, Utah, Utah State Libraries, so that when you did carbon dating, it matched to the time period. Like, he was amazing at, at how well he could do that sort of stuff. He got caught when 
the ink and the uh, you know the aging process caused the ink to crack, and that's that's kind of what did him in. But I guess my question is, is there somebody who you know very talented that could create a daguerreotype today, put it on 19th century paper, and and make such a forgery? Are you aware of anything like that? Uh, I think that so daguerreotypes aren't on paper; they're on metal plates. But there are okay. people making daguerreotypes today, so uh, I would I would guess that somebody could do that, and then would have to figure out how to artificially age it and get it sealed up in an 1840s locket. So I don't know anybody with that expertise, but there might well be somebody out there. But um, I, I guess I, I just in this case I don't know why my grandmother would <laughs> would have been involved in that, um, and Dan. <laughs> Uh, I love him dearly, but does not know. Um, he didn't know how to say daguerreotype when when he found this object. <laughs> um, but then again, a lot of people I'm hearing talk about it online don't know how to say it either, and I'm not sure I always say it right. So, <laughs> <laughs> so and you know that brings up another thing. So, uh, because you are are related to Joseph Smith, tell us how. So I'd be a great-great-great-grandson through Joseph III, Joseph Nima's oldest surviving son. He's widowed twice, married three times, having kids in his 70s. One of those sons, the oldest surviving son, is Frederick Madison Smith. Uh, He has two daughters. Lois Smith Larson is one of them. That is my Uncle Dan's mother, my grandmother. My mom was the only girl in the family. Okay. And so... Because I love that you've got you've got ties to David O'McKay, um, well, and Joseph Smith. No, hundreds of years back in Scotland, but not, not <laughs> <Okay>. close. <laughs> um, and then, so Dan Larson, the son of what was your grandmother? Lois. 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 Um, and then there's a Dean Larson who just Dean. The, he was the president of the Remnant Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Oh, Fred. Independence. Fred. Oh, that was Fred. Yeah. So how are Fred and Dan related? Fred and Dan are brothers. Dan, uh, Fred was my uncle. Okay, so Fred's your uncle. Fred was the prophet uh, until just a few years ago when he, he was in his 90s when he passed. Um, I know they kind of had a secession crisis after that. That was kind of interesting. I've yeah. been trying to get uh, Jim Van Cannon back on. Yeah. I haven't been able to work that out yet. But uh, So there's all these different ties. And so... And Dan, Dan, of course, is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, yes. but didn't wasn't he a member of the Community of Christ before? Is that right? Well, he would have been raised RLDS. I don't believe he was active for decades. But um, okay, yeah, so probably never active in after the name change. Uh, but yes. Okay, so Dan's mother. Um, died in 1992 and that's when it became in his possession just before her death yeah and uh, an important point is that his his family my grandmother and and her husband who was danish at larson and all their kids lived on fred m's farm so when fred m died the farm passed to grandmother as did many of his personal effects so I'm guessing that it passed during that transition without my grandmother even realizing it, that it was just among his personal effects. 
I, I don't know that, but I think that's that's one one potential path. Okay. Yeah. So it sounds like it has been in the Smith family through Fred M. Smith, who was the son of Joseph Smith the third, since eighteen whenever eighteen forty whenever this was was made. Is that does that sound yeah, right? I think so. Now I'm not positive that it that it went from Emma J, who's the one seen wearing it for thirty five or so years, um, to Fred or her father Joseph the third or my grandmother Lois. It's possible that it it went to another Smith woman, um, like maybe um, Inez Smith Davis or um, maybe Audentia Smith Anderson, prominent Smith women in other family lines, and then made its way to grandmother. I, I just don't know for sure. Okay. Okay. So... Um what has been the reception since it's been out for a month or two now, right? I think it's um, only been a few weeks. <laughs> it seems like forever. <laughs> yeah. I feel um, like I'm slow on the bandwagon here. You're talking to you so late here, but yeah. uh, so the the reception as we expected was initially it's Joseph or it's not Joseph based on nothing but gut feeling. You know, depending right. on how strongly you were imprinted on the oil portrait, which is what most people are imprinted on now. Uh, but as people had a chance to start reading the journal article, uh, then I think the discussion got significantly more interesting uh, with people um, either convinced or asking good questions um, and, and suggesting what, what they thought were problems. And that's been, I think, a lot of fun to try and, and track down some of those things. What are some of the biggest problems that that you find that are legitimate questions so, so i think uh, ardeth asked a really ardeth i'm sorry asked a really good question early about well if the smith family had this surely they would have been trumpeting it you know using it as a weapon against their cousins in utah um, and in the journal article we talk a little bit about how um, emma was very protective of joseph's um, image she would not allow his oil portrait to be copied she kept it in her bedroom so that uh, she could control who saw it. Um, and we talk about some other reasons why um, it might not have been public. But after the article was published, an artist asked that good question, it struck me that, that she's right, that the Smith family, in fact, did trumpet it to the world, <laughs> or at least they thought they did. So 1885, Joseph III is given a daguerreotype of his father, which he had forgotten existed by Louis Biedemann. He goes on a mission to Utah a few months later, he, while there, cuts a deal with Charles W. Carter to photograph the daguerreotype. Carter then kind of touches it up with, with ink and starts selling it. And both Joseph III and Carter thought that this was an image of Joseph from life. So Joseph III thought that he had already given to the world the image of his dad from life. And as late as uh, 1947, the graphics people in the reorganized church thought that they had in their collection images of Joseph and Emma from life that had been, again, released, but they were images of the oil portraits. <laughs> um, so artists is right that, that had they had these things, they would have talked about it, and it turns out they did. They just were mistaken on what the image was. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it doesn't make sense to me that they would say, aha, here's a second image. And in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't think it was one and the same. 
because unless you have them right next to each other, uh, I'm not sure you would pick out the differences, especially if they're scattered in the family. And can you talk a little bit about how you you use facial recognition software um, to compare the death mask to the daguerreotype? Yeah. Talk about that process. So one of, I think, our strengths is we understand our weaknesses. (laughs) So we understand what we don't know. And so we fairly quickly started trying to track down a facial recognition company who would have the expertise to do this. Again, it was very difficult because everybody shut down during the pandemic, but also because facial recognition software, the money is not in one-off daguerreotypes. It's in Defense Department contracts and, and law enforcement. So these are huge companies that would not even return our calls or our emails. But we finally found one in New Hampshire that that had the expertise and the willingness to take this project on. And so it's called Anametrics. Um, and so they uh, guided me to make sure that I got the, the images that they could use. Had to send in multiple photographs. For example, I was trying to photograph the death mask. I have a, a copy at home uh, that somebody gave me years ago. And so um, to, to make sure that it was a usable image for them, um, I, I had to, to take the image multiple times <laughs> Uh, to, 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 to get one that would work. Um, it was easier to get a copy of the, the oil portrait, of course. So we got them the materials they needed. They ran them, and they came back saying that 19 of 21 points were a match, which is a, a moderate match, and in the field of facial, apparently that's, that's a positive outcome. Okay, and that was between the death mask and the daguerreotype. Yeah, I think it's with between all three. I need to go look at the exact quote, but we asked him to, to look at all three. The death mask, okay. the oil portrait, and the daguerreotype. Okay. Well, because we know there were problems with the oil portrait, right? Yeah, and that's probably why they didn't, they didn't all match. <laughs> yeah. So, and I know you said that this was kind of cutting edge or like the, on the borders of what the software can do. Is that right? Yeah. I don't think that facial recognition is, is designed to work on art. (laughs) I think it's, uh, again, it's supposed to have multiple photographs of a, you know, known photographs of an individual, and then you're testing one against the multiples. So I do think that this is kind of on the edge of what, what facial recognition software can do. Well, and I know that there's been a lot of, in the news especially, um, you know, they train the software on white faces, and then when they get black faces or Hispanic faces or non-white faces, I'll just say it that way, it doesn't work as well. Yep. Yep. Well, I, I, I mean, because I guess the, the, the question is, how reliable is this software um, you know, you said it was a moderate match. Uh, so, I mean, th- th- is there a reasonable doubt? We'll use that that logic uh, that it might that the software got it wrong, that it could be somebody else. So, I, I think without question, it could be somebody else. And here's how we know that: people have doppelgangers. <laughs> so, so online, somebody um, fed into software the portraits of Joseph and then searched online for matches. And not surprisingly, somebody popped up 
Well, that doesn't mean in any way, shape, or form it's Joseph. It just means that their facial structure is similar to Joseph's. Uh, and I'm sure you've, you've experienced in your life running into people who look exactly like people you know. So yeah, that, that can happen. So the, the facial recognition is one piece uh, of the puzzle. It's not the, the key. But I also think that people are already running on their own. I've seen it online without permission. They're, they're running their own analysis. And, and I have seen, uh, I, I'm, surely somebody has said it's not a match, but I'm not talking about people who just look at it. I'm talking about people who have some expertise and are running, running to see if it's a match. Uh, I don't think I've seen any that are saying it's not a match. Surely there's some out there, <laughs> but um, this is something that that will be repeated uh, with people doing it on their own. Mm -hmm. Have there been any other um, questions or objections that you thought were valid? I think, th think there's some good questions about the, the shape of the lip, the top lip, um, compared to the death mask and the dag. Uh, and I think we need to keep looking at that. Um, huh. I, I don't want to say that, that other questions are not valid. I just think that, that that's the, the best question I've run across, I think, so far. Um, there were some early questions about um, whether or not Foster, the likely daguerreotypist, had equipment in town. I, I think that um, they're, they're not based on any source that we can find at this point. Um, Hmm. What are the what are the good ones you've heard? What are the good questions you've heard? For me, Artist Parshall, she's the one who who was just like ah, prominence, you know. Yeah, there's a round thing on here. Do we know? Do we know it's the same locket? I don't know. You know, uh, to me, that's been the the biggest ones. And then, you know, there's all the. I think you you've answered quite well. It's it's probably not Hiram because of the sideburns, yeah. right? And there's also people that are doing facial analysis that are are discovering it's not Hiram. Um, I would agree that artists has been the most thoughtful that I've run across so far. Um, right. There is a few images of Hiram that show a big. Um, I'm not sure if it's a mole. Have you seen some of those? I have not. Um, so I'm I'm trying to find sources on that. Uh, is I don't see it in the death mask, but but you know it's. It cuts off at some point, so that right. might be helpful if we can establish that. Um, right. Complicating things. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say complicating things with the mouth. Um, Andrew had just mentioned that you know we, we know Joseph had at least a chipped tooth from the um, from Hiram when he's tarred and feathered. I'm not sure yet. Will that change the shape of the lip? But then he had it repaired by Alexander Nybauer. I never say that right. Um, and then uh, Janetta Richards, on July 8th, writes a letter to her family in the UK. I think that's where they are. Uh, actually, I don't know where they are. She writes a letter to her family and says that while Joseph is on the ground at Carthage, they hit him in the face. Um, and I almost wonder if it's not with the butt of a gun kind of thing, um, which could obviously do some damage. So those, I think, complicate trying to make sense of the lips and the teeth. Okay. Um, now, as going back to the daguerreotype, you said basically the image is on like a, a silver plate. 
Is it's that a, right? It's a metal plate. I, I don't know that it's silver. Um, I've, I've read that it's copper, but you're, we're getting outside of my area of expertise. But it's metal. But it, it's some sort of metal. Yeah, and then uh, they use mercury to to kind of set the image. And when you look at it, it looks like a mirror. And you, as you move it around, the image appears and disappears. Oh, that's interesting. And so, so the actual image was on some sort of a metal plate inside this locket, is that right? Yes, it's a 16th plate daguerreotype cut into a circle to be inserted into the locket. And, and we, I found in the 1990s um, what appears to be the first photograph of Lucy Max Smith it's a carte de visite, a little little card, a photograph on paper, but it's of an earlier photograph. We thought it was a button at the time. We now realize it's a photograph of another Daguerrean locket insert, but not in the locket. And based on a painting of Lucy hanging in the Nauvoo Temple by December of 46, we believe that suggests that this technology is in Nauvoo, being used by the Smith family by the mid-1840s. Um, so yet another piece of, of evidence that supports the likelihood that this is Joseph. Okay, so so this photo was likely taken between 1840-1844 because that's when he died. It couldn't have been taken any later than that. Yeah, um, based on Grant Romer, who's, if, if not the world's expert, one of the world's experts on archaic imaging, he thinks that the image dates uh, to 1843 or later. And the best candidate to have taken it is Lucian Foster, who is in Nauvoo, arrives in Nauvoo April 27 of 44. And he's here for maybe f five weeks, maybe four weeks before he heads out on a mission, a campaign mission. Um, well, probably five. So there's probably five or six weeks where Lucian Foster could have taken it. Okay, so he's the most likely photographer. Yeah. Um, there's no way to metal to carbon date metals, right? <laughs> um, I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, there was yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's correct. There, there might be some ways to do something like that, um, but the the daguerreotype expert who who looked at it for us when disassembled believed, based on the back of the plate, that it was consistent with the mid 1840s. Um, it would have been really helpful to have a maker's mark, but I'm sure if there was one, it got trimmed off when they cut it into a circle. Um, right. Because these images are just tiny, right? Like This one is oh, one and a half inches. The locket is one and a half inches. Now, okay. slightly complicating things, people took daguerreotypes of daguerreotypes and, and repeated the process. <laughs> so it's possible... Um, to have an image on an 1850s plate, I'm not suggesting this is, but it would be possible to have an image on an 1850s plate that is uh, that originates in the 1840s, if that makes sense. Okay, yeah, that does. Um, yeah, just trying to remember if there's any other questions to ask. I have other questions for you, but I'm, is there anything else on the locket that, that we should bring up? I just think it's fun that they are advertising in The Prophet, a church newspaper in New York City, in May of 44. There are two daguerreotypists advertising their services, their lessons, their equipment, their supplies, and one of them in the church newspaper advertising daguerrean lockets. So 
it's it's consistent. It's these things were available. Did they did they ever make larger because larger images? They or did. Was that just too expensive? Yeah, no, they did make okay. larger ones, and most of them. And I think another reason this one got overlooked is most daguerreotypes are in in rectangular cases that you open up. So they're uh, I'm going to guess three by five. I'm, uh, I haven't measured one, so but they're right. you know there is a subset of daguerrean jewelry, but most people don't think about that. They're they're focused on the the cases. And that's certainly what I was focused on, you know, growing up in the family, especially once I started getting interested in daguerreotypes in the 1990s. Um, I thought there was one in the family of Joseph, but I always assumed it would be in one of those cases, not in a small piece of jewelry. Very cool. All right. Anything else before we move on to something else here on the, on the photograph? I think I'm good. Okay. So the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about, um, when you came out here, of course, Under the Banner of Heaven has been um, well talked about here in Utah for sure. Um, you guys have your own kind of Under the Banner of Heaven murder mystery. Yeah, there's no mystery. <laughs> so can you yeah. tell us a little bit about that? It's not yeah. much of a mystery, I guess. but Yeah, it is tragic. So a, a man by the name of Jeff Lundgren, who... Um, in the 1980s objected to things like women in the priesthood was from a traditional RLDS family uh, decided that he somehow could set the church in order um, single-handedly and he ended up moving to Kirtland, Ohio he was from the Independence, Missouri area moved to Kirtland, Ohio with his family to volunteer at Kirtland Temple he ended up developing a small cult following um, ended up in conflict with the then state president Dale Luffman. Uh, some of your listeners might know Dale from his book on the Book of Mormon, Book of Mormon's witness to its first readers. Um, but uh, Jeff ended up being removed from his volunteer position at the Kirtland Temple um, and removed from his role in teaching Book of Mormon Sunday school classes in the local congregation. Moved off site and um, I, I think it was, I, I'm going to get the timeline wrong, but some, some, uh, maybe a year or so later, um, that he ended up killing a family of five with the assistance of some of his followers, believing that, um, that these people, because of their lack of faith, were hindering the return of Christ. So... Uh, Jeff was expecting these Christ were members of his own group, right? These were members of his own group, but they they were not living on the farm. the The hardcore believers were living on a farm about four miles from the temple with Jeff and his family. These people were not living on the farm, but Jeff and his followers. So he had the help of four or five of the adult men um, who who shot and buried this family. Just horrific, horrific. And the morning after they did it, uh, 20 plus police officers descended on the farm searching for illegal guns. He didn't find any and ended up leaving. Um, and that spooked, of course, Jeff and his followers who were planning on moving into the wilderness anyway. But they hurriedly left home. And then the community soon started coming apart. Jeff started um, sleeping with the wives of some of the men, taking them at least one 
this, his own wife, even though he was always, already married. Uh, not surprisingly, they, they took exception to that. One of them went to the police, um, and the thing came apart, and they tracked Jeff and his family down in San Diego, and he was later executed in Ohio. Yeah, and I know I've, I've talked to Bill Russell. Uh, he'll be coming up right after your interview. Uh, Bill's a lawyer, um, and he also taught at Graceland, and, but he uh, tried to help defend Jeff from the death penalty. Yeah, that was hard. I would, you know, I was at Kirtland Temple for 15 years, and people would ask me about Jeff, and I would explain that, that uh, if anybody, in my opinion, deserved the death penalty, it's Jeff, but I don't anybody deserves the death penalty um, but what a horrific, horrific act he committed just uh, tragic and heartbreaking yeah definitely um, it seems like because uh, you you actually gave uh, we don't give Sunday school lessons about under the banner of heaven but you kind of did <laughs> here, here in Salt Lake and you you mentioned I can't remember if there was one or two books and one of them had blood atonement in the name I thought or something like that yeah so remember what the name of the book was yeah it's a prophet of death the Mormon blood atonement murders or something like that. it's by Pete Early so as you well know that when people outside of the Latter-day Saint movement write about us, they have very little time getting things straight. <laughs> but but Pete did a decent job, but um, the blood atonement part, you know, that was never part of the reorganization. <laughs> so I'm not quite blood sure. Blood atonement was never part, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure how that worked its way into the book. Um, yeah. Because that was my question, was were these blood atonement killings, or it sounded like he just wanted these people to go away and, and well, kill them, right? He did Isn't think, that right? He did think that their um, lack of faithfulness was hindering Christ's return. So I, I don't think that sounds like blood atonement, um, but... Wasn't he more using this as the story of Laban? Better that one person should perish than a whole congregation? Probably. He's a huge, <laughs> huge Book of Mormon fan. Although it was going to be 10 of his followers that were, yeah. were going to perish. He also had a plan to take over the Kirtland Temple and and do in church leaders in the area. Um, but the police showed up to, to talk with him. Actually, one of his followers turned him in to the FBI in Buffalo. And the FBI didn't take it seriously, apparently, uh, but but the local Kirtland police chief did, and when he showed up the farm, that scared Jeff, so he didn't carry that out. Oh, okay. And we're, remind me the name of the family that was killed. Avery's Dennis and Cheryl Avery and their three girls. Yeah, and so. They were they were the only ones that were killed um, on the on, and they were buried on the farm. They were buried on the farm. Yeah, that's great. Such a terrible story, because it seems like Bill had mentioned that that Jeff's. Oh, I was just going to say that Jeff's justification was the story of Nephi killing Laban, and how he thought that was a terrible part that we should we should even remove that from the Book of Mormon. Yeah. No, Bill, Bill's a little bit of a heretic, I think, there. But I'm curious what you would think about that as well. Bill knows the story much better than I. Uh, most of what I know about it, I've learned from Bill. So if that's Bill's take, I think um, I'd, I'd agree with him. Um, I, I think the story of Laban is problematic. Um, and the reason we talked about it in Sunday School is we 
not not directly in response to Lundgren, but have systems in place now to try to equip our members to ensure that something like that doesn't happen again. Uh, the way that they um, kind of process things, we look at revelation through multiple lenses, and, and Jeff wouldn't have passed the test, um, but um, he was extraordinarily gifted at at using script particularly the Book of Mormon, and find chiasms uh, and would use that to manipulate followers. Um, so I think we'd also hope that members might be scripturally literate enough to, to not quickly fall for something like that again. I mean, is that something you think can be prevented? Because I know in the LDS Church we have lots of breakoff groups, usually polygamous. And oh, by the way, was it sounds like Jeff embraced polygamy, which, which seems kind of odd because for all these years the RLDS denied Joseph practiced polygamy. Yeah. So it's weird that he would embrace that. Well, most of what Jeff embraced had nothing to do with RLDSism. <laughs> um, so yes, I do think he embraced polygamy. Yeah. Um, so can you prevent it? ever happening probably not but can you equip members with the tools to minimize the chance that it will happen I, I think so um, and and at least feel like we need to try so the temple lot church had a, a mentally ill member that um, that burned down the church so I think these are the kinds of things that happen in every congregation I love that you guys are are trying to um, to prevent this, because this is the kind of thing, LDS has a lot of breakoffs, but I guess you guys kind of do too with the restoration branches. Um, but can you talk a little bit more about the the Temple Lot fire in about 1990? Yeah, you know I, I was pretty young at the time, but I believe that the, the young person was joining maybe multiple congregations with the idea that he could reunite them. Um, and I, I do not, and, and I know that he's mentally unwell, uh, but beyond that, I don't think I can remember the details. Um, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't remember beyond that. Okay. Well, I love that you guys are at least trying to minimize the damage that these sorts of people can do. Um, what advice do you have for, for us to to try to minimize that damage. Well, I don't know that I feel comfortable giving advice uh, uh, to you on that, but let me say that I do think that because we believe in continuing revelation, we are more vulnerable to, to those kinds of people. And I think by simply recognizing that, that's an important first step that, that allows us to be a little more cautious when somebody stands up and says, God told me to fill in the blank. Yeah. My, my favorite thing, Lindsay Hanson Park, I think you know Lindsay. Yeah, she's the executive director of Sunstone. She's like, oh, I know so many prophets. They're a dime a dozen. <laughs> and that is something pretty unique to, to Mormonism in general. This, this, you know, anybody can become a prophet, I guess, right? Apparently. 
<laughs> I, I'm reminded that uh, Steve Shields uh, said that every prophet is a self-proclaimed prophet, even Joseph Smith. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I love that you guys are trying to do that. I, I think we probably should worry about those extremists a little bit more, too, so... All right. Well, is there anything else we need to talk about, Locke? Well, certainly, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> I, I will just add one more memory. Um, something that you said, hopefully this is okay, and if it's not, I'll, I'll cut it out. But um, I, when you were showing me and Steve the graves for Emma, Joseph, and Hiram, because they're right next to each other, I think you said that they, they think they got Hiram and Joseph mixed up when they buried them. Is that right? Yeah, Ron Romig and I, uh, as well as Henry Inouye, said that in the probably in the 1990s, and and we've had some pushback, but I'm pretty confident um, that that they misidentified them. Um, yeah, they identified Hiram based on a bullet hole, but what they thought was the bullet hole was on the wrong side of the nose, and the other set of remains. And I apologize, this is a little graphic, but nothing survived from the chin to the eyebrow ridge, we concluded that was likely damage from the impact of the musket ball. So, so I believe that we have Hiram in the middle marked as Joseph, Joseph on one side marked as Hiram, and Emma on the other side next to Hiram. But Emma and Hiram were dear friends. I'm sure they're, they're okay with it. <laughs> so they got she Emma got over it when Hiram brought the polygamy revelation and supposedly threw it in the fire. <laughs> I think those are two different events. I think the throwing in the fire is is later versus what what she did immediately. Um, but what Hiram said is, I've never had a worse talking to in all my life. Um, and there's some confusion about whether it's Emma putting it in the fire or Joseph putting it in the fire at Emma's request or, um, yeah, complicated yeah. like so much of our story. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, that was a, a fun little story. I remember one to share there. So. All right. Well, I've, I've run out of questions. I don't know what else we can ask about the, the Joseph Smith daguerreotype and, and, uh, you know, I do have an upcoming interview with Bill Russell, so we can talk a little bit more about Jeff Lundgren too. So, great. But just want to thank you once again, uh, Locke Mackay, for being here on Gospel Tangents. Great to be with you, Rick. Appreciate it. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Apostle Locke Mackay. Locke, thank you so much for sitting down with me and uh, talking about the Joseph Smith photo as well as the uh, Lundgren murder. So. Uh, for those of you who are interested to know a little bit more, our next guest, uh, Bill Russell, who's a professor, former professor at Graceland University, and uh, he was on the defense team for Jeff Lundgren. So we're going to talk about him and also a famous athlete that you may have heard of that attended Graceland. Were you at Graceland when Bruce Jenner was there? Yeah, he, he was a friend of mine because we both talked about track, you know. No way. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you coach him at all? No, no, no. He had he had LD while I didn't coaching him. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I, I did tell him, be sure and not be be sure, and don't underestimate the importance of the of the fifteen hundred meter run, the last event in the uh, in the uh, decathlon, because a lot of times a guy who's 
good into the nine events, we'll just we'll just train for those nine events and then just try to get it out you know, in that last event, which is the 1,500 meter. And LD, uh, he was always good in the 1,500 meters. At, at, Bruce, was. Bruce was, yeah. If you like what we're doing at Gospel Tangents, please support us. Go to gospeltangents.com and you can get full interviews as well as transcripts if you'd like those. So click here to subscribe and over here you can see some of our other great videos. Thanks again.